Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Today we are joined by Jessica Holden Sherwood, an assistant professor of social sciences at Johnson and Wales University, to discuss her book, Wealth, Whiteness, and the Matrix of Privilege, The View from the Country Club. We learn about how country clubs work, the various mechanisms of exclusion utilized by members, and how this relates to larger discourses of privilege. Thank you for joining us today. Sure, my pleasure. Perhaps we could start by talking about what you were actually studying. I think clubhouses are the type of things that uh, most people are aware of their existence, but they really don't have a sense of how they work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, well, I, I was researching country clubs that are exclusive with their membership. These are places where families can go for um, dining and golf and tennis and, you know, sometimes a couple other things. And so the ones I, I studied are exclusive ones where you really have to know somebody who's already in in order to get in. And even then, it's you're not a shoe-in. <laughs> oh, okay, so there's mm-hmm. different levels of clubhouses, and um, you were at some of the more elite ones? I was trying to aim as high as I could um, in, the, in my own geographical area. Oh, okay. But you're right. Some, some clubs, you can just walk on and play golf, and I, that, you know, I was avoiding places like that. In the book, you have this discussion uh, about how sociologists have a tendency to study uh, oppressed, marginalized, or excluded groups of people. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm guessing this isn't what led you to the golf course. Right. So how did you end up there, and what motivated you to do this type of research? Um, yeah, it was, it was um, reading and listening to sociologists who talked about studying inequalities. And uh, in my graduate department, we had an inequality area that was race and class and gender integrated, which was great. Um, and they would point out that we need to, quote, study up as okay. well as studying the poor and women and people of color. And so that was my original inspiration. You know, it had nothing to do with golf or anything, and, and everything to do with wanting to study the people who are privileged by race and class and gender inequality. Do you have any sense of why there are not more studies that uh, engage in this studying up, as you described it? I think there's a couple different reasons. I think originally, you know, giving voice to the voiceless was part of the motivation for studying women and the poor and people of color. And I applaud that. But, um, so that's one reason they've, they've been a focus, but another reason, and, um, this is partly speculation is that these people can be more elusive and harder to access. Okay. And so it was partly, um, you know, my local social capital and cultural capital that enabled me to access these people. I wish we could spend time working through every section of the book and all the different parts of your argument. Unfortunately, it isn't possible to mm-hmm. in, in a short podcast. However, I do want to recommend to all the listeners uh, to check out the book. Um, there's some mm-hmm. really great ethnographic detail that you contain and also some great quotes from the interviews. Sure. Um, so let's focus in a little bit on uh, some specific parts of the argument. In particular, could we talk a bit more about the screening process that the clubs employ? Um, so what were the decisions based on um, and were the members open and honest about that process? They were open about it, which was a pleasant surprise. Um, And the screening was a bit of a surprise, too. I always assumed it was mainly a financial thing, if you could afford to get in, you're in, but I was wrong about that. Um, The 
the price is low enough that plenty of people could afford it, so they have to screen on social bases. And um, a, a cocktail party is the quintessential screening tool. And um, how you show up and behave at the party can, can make it or break it for your application. So first you apply, then you get invited to the party, and then you have to perform correctly at the party uh, in order to gain access? Yes. <laughs> Although the way they technically word it is that you only submit your application if you succeed at the party. Okay. And that way they don't, you know, they don't have to say they're rejecting you. They're just saying they're not inviting your application. It's just a semantic difference, but it makes them look a little gentler. It seems like it has a lot of overlap or the same model as the fraternities or sororities in college. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think one reason people were open about being exclusive is that it, it, is, it has that sort of social friendship building feel like a fraternity. And um, when pe- most people think about discrimination, they think of it in workplace terms. Yeah. And so the fact that this was social, um, I think, took discrimination off people's minds. So what were the qualities that mattered at the cocktail parties? I think typically it's someone similar to the deciders, you know, someone who fits in and seems to fit right in and get right along. And so what was more clear was the occasion when I would ask what were, you know, what could break somebody. Okay. And it might even be as simple as the wrong outfit. Wow. Yeah. Um, Because the outfit, you know, signals whether or not you're in this group. Yeah. If If you're following the the unwritten dress code, that's a signal that you, you, you get it, you're a part of it, you know what's up. What type of uh, outfits were expected or what did people actually, were you able to go to any of these parties or did you just hear about it through the interviews? Just heard about them. And um, one example for, you know, a sort of failure example for a woman would be red shoes. And a failure example for a man would be a black shirt and a white tie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which which means nothing to me as I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you're not a New England wasp. I don't. Yeah, I don't think I'll make it in the club. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you uh, mentioned in the book that the uh, members seemed very reflexive about the exclusive nature of the club. Mm-hmm. Um, you highlight that they were not really surprised by the questions you were asking, um, and they seemed to explicitly understand and value how the club passed on opportunity and social capital. And we don't always expect this as sociologists. Um, We like Mm -hmm. to think that we provide the interpretation. Um, So Mm -hmm. were you surprised and why do you think they were so reflexive? Yeah, I expected um, defensiveness and there was a little bit of that, but um, so I was, I was surprised as well. And so I had to think over, you know, how come they have answers ready? (laughs) And, and I think that um, it's because, Living here in the United States, part of our culture is about egalitarian open access, you know, and, and meritocracy and all that American ideology. And so I feel like even before I came along to ask them questions, they had to have some sort of account in mind for how they could feel okay with belonging to these exclusive clubs. Okay, so they knew they had to explain it because they're outside the, the ideal or um, mm-hmm. the, that goal of fair play. Yeah, and I I think um, it might be comparable to sending your kid to an elite private school. I think you already have have to have a story you're telling yourself about why that's okay. 
did it seem like they all had the same story or that it was something they had discussed in the clubhouse or is it something that the, did it seem more like they individually came to the same type of conclusions? I think individual. I, and I think one of the most common ones was it's a, you know, it's a great place for me to raise my children. But then a secondary one would be um, it's useful for me in my career. Okay. And so it wasn't one uniform account that everybody sort of repeated. And yet there were common themes. So when they were talking about the opportunity that it generated for them, uh, was that generally a discussion of um, social networks and the uh, connections they now had? Yes. And also teaching. So, yeah, connections for themselves and their children and also um, cultural capital, although, of course, they didn't use those terms, but um, teaching their kids uh, manners, etiquette, how to appropriately interact with with people, you know, at mealtime and on the golf course and so on. Another part of the book that I really enjoyed was your discussion of the club's diversity-seeking tactics, which you described as being color-conscious rather than color-blind. Uh, perhaps you could take a little bit of time to explain the, uh, the compare and contrast those two terms and also talk about how the color-conscious model still allowed exclusion, exclusion by culture and class. Yeah, I think colorblind is, is commonly the label given to, you know, dominant American ideology. And it's true that most, I think at least most white Americans, want to talk about race as little as possible and claim color blindness. And for the most part, I agree with that analysis. But I feel like there's another offshoot where um, groups recognize the importance of having some visible diversity and not being all white groups anymore. Okay. And so that's that's not colorblind. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, they had to they had to sort of uh, take a break from claiming colorblindness in order to be sure that they recruited some people of color to join the club. Um, so that's where they had to become sort of color conscious. How did that still allow exclusion uh, or maintain the same type of uh, culture or class within the mm-hmm. uh, club while they were doing that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, um, it's diversity that's pretty shallow because, yes, it is racial-ethnic diversity, but they're admitting... Um, you know, Ivy League educated golf playing African American men, and so you can t- see that that's not that's not throwing the doors wide open. How did the how did the members talk about the racial makeup, and did they ever make that jump to link it to larger social or uh, issues in the United States? They didn't make the connections to larger discussions, but I think the connection was there okay. between the lines because they would talk. Uh, with pride about the diversity of their membership, you know, and they were very pleased to be able to let me know that they were not an all-white club. And so that matches sort of, you know, modern America. Um, We don't want to address race too much, but we want to show off the fact that we're not segregated anymore. Yeah. So there's a, um, you know, and although they weren't making the connection, I think we see both at the in my interviewees and in America as a whole, we don't want to talk about race, but at the same time, we like to be able to see some diversity in our groups, even if um, it's pretty shallow and token. So in the book, you described how um, some of the younger members of the club attributed uh, anything that seemed overtly racist or sexist just to the older generation and suggested that it would change uh, as they aged out and Mm -hmm. the younger generation aged in. Um, but you didn't seem completely convinced by that explanation. Um, so why, why, why weren't you convinced? That 
rhetoric is probably something you've heard if you've done college teaching. Students think yeah. it's just old people, and as soon as they're all dead, we won't be at all racist anymore. Yeah, you know, and I, I, um, I'm skeptical when I hear students say that, and um, I'm not, so I'm not convinced. And this is sort of getting outside my own study, but I'm not convinced that is going to end disparities by race that we have in this country. But um, even to uh, to stay within my study, I think that the um, the lessons learned by everybody who is hanging around and growing up in these clubs are not lessons of egalitarianism and true colorblindness and openness. And so um, I just feel like it's a little bit too facile and maybe maybe wishful thinking to say that, um, you know, another decade or two and we'll be done with racism and sexism. Were you seeing any difference in how the younger members were using or conceiving at the clubhouse or did it really seem like the culture was just being passed down and reproduced over and over? Pretty repeating. I mean, you know, they, but everybody has had to sort of come along on diversification and even the oldest people can no longer say, gee, I really wish my club was still all white. You know, everybody knows <laughs> that's not okay to say anymore. Yeah. Um, but I, so I didn't see too much uh, difference between members in their 40s and members in their 70s. You know, it doesn't, if, if a teenager's there, it's because their parents are there. Okay. So and they're not so, coming there by themselves. Uh, well, I mean, maybe they're coming alone, but they're, nobody joins up. Oh, I see. Yeah. As a as a really young person. Okay. Yeah. Now, I was I was wondering if there's something special about golf. Um, I mean, the clubhouse offers other amenities like uh, I don't know, like tennis or swimming or, or things like that. But it always seems like golf is really the center central point of it. So, is there something special about that sport and reproducing privilege? I think its uniqueness is more, you know, in earlier in history than today. But it it I believe used to be a rich person's sport because it required so much real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and nowadays it's more accessible to everybody, but it still has that aura of being a rich people's sport. And um, in the, in the interviews, people with kids would talk a lot about the character building nature of the sport of golf. Oh, okay. What, um, did, what did they, what did they highlight for um... like control over your emotions you know, you get frustrated, but you have to behave maturely and um, integrity because you have the, the chance to cheat and move your ball if you feel like it, but you just have to do what's right and play, play by the rules, even if no, nobody's watching. And, you know, the, the, the constantly improving your previous um, efforts is more important in golf than beating your opponent because you might not even have any opponent that day. So it's a, it's a sort of an individualistic, you know, <laughs> um, quest. Yeah, that's really interesting in thinking about comparison to other sports where it's seen as almost an outlet for emotions and aggressions, and here it's even a place of greater control. Yes, that's right. And one person I talked to didn't always have control over his feelings and, and threw a club in frustration once and was suspended. Oh, so they, they enforce it very strictly at the clubhouse. Yes, because that's part of the, the atmosphere I think people want to buy into is decorum. Okay. And, a, a, you know, more refinement than you might get in public venues. 
were you able to go along during any of the golf games or were you excluded from that aspect? Uh, yeah, I never did. Um, you know, and initially I wanted to be more of a fly on the wall on the property mm-hmm. and um, sort of had to settle for interviews. Okay. Was that by the choice of the clubhouse members? Uh, that was their preference, but it was also the fact that um, when I first submitted a fly-on-the-wall proposal to my university's IRB, Institutional Review Board for mm-hmm. Human Subjects Research, they balked. And oh. I can only speculate as to whether that was fear of getting sued. Hmm. You know, and I, so I can't, I, I'm not certain of that, and I don't want to speak ill of my university, but yeah. that's a possibility, and that's a possible contributor to how come these people don't get studied more. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because that type of approach is often... Uh, okayed for groups with less privilege. Right, right. But these are, you know, lawyers and and or can hire lawyers. Yeah. And that might be why the IRB blocked. Yeah, and very aware of the image that's being presented to them. Yes. So perhaps we could finish by returning to one of the arguments you made right in the beginning of the book. Um, and I think a bit of a larger moving outside just to study question of um, you introduced this idea of a matrix of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering what you mean by this term, and then what are some of the larger takeaway points that, uh, from your research in the country club? Okay. Um, well, Matrix of Privilege I grabbed from Estelle Dish, I think, was the author. I didn't okay. make it up, but, you know, it's a, it's a flip on the matrix of oppression. Um, and so the Matrix of Privilege is people um, enjoying privilege based on their class and race and gender. And I write a little bit about how one equal, one hierarchy supports another in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. that if, um, if you're a rich white man, you have, uh, I think someone, someone used to call it a t- triple penalty. I forget what, you know, the flip side was called, but, um, just that the, each privilege reinforces another and helps you sort of maintain your edge. Okay. Um, and, and, um, I think the the larger point is, and I certainly never make the claim that country clubs are some sort of original root cause of these inequalities, because that's clearly not true. Yeah. But the larger point is just that it's one cog in the machinery, and that all three of these inequalities are are getting reproduced in many different settings, such as this one, but linked with uh, neighborhood and school and workplace. Mm-hmm and um, getting reproduced both at the micro level of inside people's heads and what they think and how they talk, and at the macro level of what are our laws and policies in this country about exclusivity versus open access. That was great. Thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed hearing about the research. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.